listeners, and welcome to this special edition of the Unions 21 podcast with me, Simon Sapper. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the second half of the Unions 21 conference, which took place late in May in London. Part one was all about the future of collective voice. This episode is all about the future of work, how we deal with AI, what unions can do to raise their digital game. Lots and lots of really interesting case studies and practical information. We're going to be hearing from industry experts such as Natasha Kizzy from Google, Christina Colclough from Union Networks International, the Global Union, Anthony Hayes from the TUC, all talking about practical, hands-on, adaptable strategies for dealing with AI, getting up to speed with AI. We're going to have valuable insight from Dean Rogers of the National Association of Probation Officers, and we're going to hear from Professor Mel Sims of the University of Glasgow about her 21 years of experiences at the Union's 21 conference. That's all after we've dealt with the very thorny, very real issue of the future of work. In a session chaired by Union's 21 chair, Sue Ferns, we had again a really star-studded platform, really authoritative, arresting voices. Jill Dix, the Head of Workplace Policy at ACAS, Anthony Painter from the RSA's Action and Research Centre, and Ivana Bartoletti, who is the Chair of the Fabians Women Network, but also one of the founder members of the Women Leading in AI. Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Sue Ferns. I'm Chair of Unions 21. It's my pleasure to chair this session on the future of work and how unions and policymakers should respond. Polling results published today shows that one in five people are more pessimistic about their career prospects than they were one year ago, which plays in very nicely to the future of work and whether we're optimistic or pessimistic about it and whether we should be worried by the rise of automation, AI, machine world, and so on. So, Ivana, is that your specialist area? A few thoughts from you about that, please. I think, if I may start on this briefly, I think the first point is to understand what is this automation fourth industrial revolution that we are talking about before we can say, are we concerned about it or not? So we are in the middle of the so-called fourth industrial revolution, which is fueled by one thing, which is data. Yeah? So data is fueling this fourth revolution. Data, many people consider it as being the new oil, which isn't, because oil, you use it, you finish it, and that's it. With data, you use it, then you use it again, and again, and how many times you want. So we live into this fourth industrial revolution whereby data is fueling algorithms, algorithms are fueling automation, which means that machines can do some tasks much better than we can. And there is no corner of our life right now which is untouched by artificial intelligence. Your phone, your sat-nav, decisions about credit worthiness, anything. This is what's going on at the moment. If I'm worried about it, yes. I'm worried in the sense that if unregulated, if unchecked, then artificial intelligence is not going to be the transformative in the positive sense that I would like it to be. And that is the problem. It's obvious that artificial intelligence will destroy jobs. It's happening. 
and across all sectors. And it will also redefine geopolitics at global level because some jobs, some countries will be hit more, especially if they are more reliant on the jobs that are more likely to be destroyed by machines. So I'm concerned about the lack of understanding, especially from policymakers, around this. Because what I'm concerned about is that policymakers do not understand the real transformative power of artificial intelligence in this fourth industrial revolution. And because they do not understand it, they can't tackle it properly. And that is the main concern I have. Because they think artificial intelligence is a new piece of technology. It isn't. It's much more than that. It's power. It's power to transform things quite dramatically. If policymakers, I, I mean, I've been a member of, of, of Unison for many years, if us trade unionists do not understand it either, that we can't really govern that change that is coming, and it's a very opaque change. And corporations, and, and they've got all the interests for that to remain opaque. So, Sue, you're asking, are you concerned? Is that a concern? It is because I feel that we're not grasping the real sense of it. And if we do not grasp the real sense of it, I think we don't have the answers to govern it in a way that could be positive for society and positive for workers. Ivana Bartoletti there. Uh, and next, Jill Dix, Head of Workplace Policy at ACAS. That's, don't be deceived by the job title. Jill is the lead, one of the leading experts about workplace conflict and the importance of collective voice in resolving or avoiding conflict. Uh, here's her response to, to Sue's challenging question. Well, first of all, I guess to an extent ACAS thrives on the problems of work, uh, but we're also, as you say, there for, as a solution provider. I think the really interesting thing for me is why I started working on technology and AI in ACAS was because it became a very strong feature of our collective conciliation work, and those in the room know everything about about that area of activity at ACAS, I won't explain it. So looking back, I saw instances where jobs were changing, roles were changing, and that became a source of discontent. I'm not going to name any conflicts, but if I talk about you know, automation taking over jobs, people will begin to conjure up the kind of cases that you'll know I'm talking about. I've seen, I've seen cases of really surprising small-scale changes that as a result of technological innovation in organisation that have wreaked havoc. The first of these I came across actually in a project in the West East Midlands, which was uh, an opportunity for people to work with ACAS on innovation. And it was very exciting cases came to us and then opened, the door opened and there was a head of HR and a union rep from a strategic health authority. And they came in and said that uh, they were having problems introducing their uh, self-service HR system. I have to confess to being rather crestfallen. It sounded a little bit down, downbeat until I got into the work and understanding how important introducing technological change in a very small-scale corner of the business can really be. Uh, so that was another important area. I have to say we've just introduced our own self-service HR system in ACAS, and now I've lived through the process. It's, not, it's clearly not straightforward. And then there's the much more kind of stronger and really challenging areas around the role of AI and technology and its association with how employers control performance, how they control the pace of work, how that impacts on people's loss of autonomy, 
and the effect that that can have on the employment relationship. So the interaction between technology and work is definitely a cause for concern and it's a cause that comes to ACAS's door. And finally, Anthony Painter from the RSA, the Royal Society of Arts. Uh, he's head of their Action and Research Centre and he's something of an expert on the notion of a universal basic income, as you may detect uh, as you listen to his contributions. Uh, a lot of what's already been said resonates. Um, something that Ivana said, that she, she, you're worried about policymakers' grasp of the future. I'm worried about their grasp of the present. And I'm also worried about where they're trying to take us because I'm not sure they have a very clear idea at all. The technologies that are upon us intersect with work in a whole myriad, myriad of ways, which I'll come on to, but they lead to very different places, depending on the strength of trade unions, the way trade unions operate, the way the owners of technology um, operate, the implementers of technology operate, uh, the way the state operates, how it regulates, how it redistributes, how it manages the market. These are enormous sort of generational questions. Right? This is a whole series of challenges to the way that power within the marketplace, within, within politics, within society operates. And I'm not sure we've quite grasped the magnitude um, of that. And where are we trying to get to? And interestingly, we're starting off from a very difficult place, is my honest assessment. We've just been spending a lot of time in, in Fife looking at economic security in relation to the welfare state and the modern world of work and so on. And if you spend any time with, with, with workers, with citizens, as everybody in this room does, because that's your job and that's what drives you, and you listen to the voices, you hear some very challenging messages. You know, these are just some of the quotes that we picked up. The system fatigues people in every way, physically, mentally, financially. It's not called a poverty trap for nothing. It's hard to get out of, impossible. I'd like to be able to plan ahead for more than a month. Having more secure income would allow me to say no to a job and have the option to look for something else rather than having to choose between taking a job available or being destitute. So straight away, we're in a context where I think the world of work is becoming more precarious, volatile, economic insecurity is spreading. Um, we have um, a, a set of policies and institutions that aren't adapted to the challenges of now. And then you have these new technologies already intersecting with the world of work in a myriad of ways. So we've already talked about AI. Well, the consequences of AI, well, it can create enormous wealth. It can create enormous public good, there's no doubt about it. But it might lead to insufficient good work I don't doubt that we'll have enough work to go round, but we might have a lot more precarious work that leaves people with very few options. It may also concentrate wealth and power in new ways, and we're seeing that with global platforms. Automation might displace, again, good middle-class jobs, as it has done in the past. This is not new. We've seen ways of technology before. We've seen what impact it can have unless we're mindful of adopting it in, uh, in, in, in the right ways. Technology can change managerial practices. A lot of the conversation in this field has been around the obsolescence of work, but very little of it has been about sort of monitoring and worker voice and agency and empowerment. And you know, it's encouraging that ACAS are looking in detail at these um, sorts of questions because there is quite a dystopian future in this regard. And while we're talking about mass unemployment, which I don't think will be the outcome of these ways of technologies, we're missing the critical things, which is distributing wealth, income and power differently. Certain areas benefiting more than others, and I think reference already been made to, but also the monitoring and control of workers, which, which can be sort of technologically fueled through machine learning, Internet of Things, AI technologies and so on. 
I think the challenge for trade unions and for workers uh, in the future is how you know, we can build on the old power models of using employment law and mass membership organisations, which are important and effective. And I think there's been lots of cases where major trade unions, you know, independent workers, workers of Great Britain, GMB and many others, have taken cases to industrial tribunals and had important successes. But the question is how we can blend that with, if you like, new power models where different types of services are offered, where workers are offered different ways of coming together, how information is shared and so on. And we're seeing some emerging models in this field uh, as well. And we can talk about that a bit further down the line. We're working with, 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 with some of them. But what's important, I think, from the perspective of labour movement is to have the, the courage to invest and develop and build, to use some of the techniques of big technology in order to redress the balance and for governments to support them in that endeavour. This is going to require a sort of societal effort alongside the traditional associations of, of trade unionism. I mean, all, all that happens. Anthony Painter there from the RSA. And so on to what proved to be a pretty lively question and answer session. Uh, question one, what do unions need to do to maintain influence and collective voice in an era of increasing AI? On the question of voice, ACAS lost its power away 25 years ago now to promote collective bargaining, but voice, if, we, if the day that we stop having vo employee voice as an important part of our agenda is the day ACAS really needs to give up and go home, I think. And I think that's reflected in our tripartite structure on council. So it's something that we continue to promote. And obviously I'm working at very much the workplace level and we can see <coughs> what the union can bring to these these areas firsthand in terms of uh, how much they have the knowledge of the business to steer the business, it's their future investment for, their, for themselves and their members, so how they can play a part in controlling and con contributing to technological change to me is absolutely vital. What, I've, what we've seen in our research on this area is what we call a human lag. So it's very much that management practices actually are taking way too long to catch up with technological change. Technology takes a long time to get into the workplace. It was 20 years after the introduction of the conveyor belt that it actually started moving into factory floors. And in the same way, you know, iPads were used at home and many, many years later they started being introduced into workplaces. And behind that are management practices that are lagging behind. And that's where we need to work on bringing the management practices not up to speed with the technological change, but in, in advance of them and informing the shape of them. So that's the kind of the way I would like to sort of ACAS make a contribution in trying to turn the debate round a bit so that actually HR is slightly more ahead of the game and the unions are part of the shaping of that. I guess the interesting question is not just what innovations will, will catch it's how you can resource and, and support the ecosystem of innovation that can then be scaled. Now, you compare the, the volume of, of, of capital flooding into the next new consumer platform with the volume of capital that floods into worker support platforms, and I don't think we'd even begin to make a comparison. So I think that is a question for the trade union movement, actually. Is there capital locked up in the trade union movement that can furnish some of these innovations? But beyond that, you know, what sort of public investment might be necessary because this is for a public good, right? And we've got to get out over our hang-ups uh, in that regard. So what does that look like? If we were to have a mission-oriented approach to worker support, as opposed to a mission-oriented industrial policy, what could that uh, look like? So those would be really... 
Um, and we need to think about mechanisms through regional and local industrial policy that can support places adapt. We've got to think about things from an individual level. What are the mechanisms that can give workers the ability to retrain, reskill, look for new opportunities? Personal training accounts are part of the infrastructure we need to think about. Universal basic income, shopping, take a breath. I'm not going to dwell on it. Well, maybe I'll come back to it later. But just to say, in terms of a smoothing mechanism, something that can give a degree of autonomy to individuals to make choice about their future lives, it's not a bad way. If there are better ways, I haven't yet heard them. But it can't work in isolation. It's got to work in operation with a whole series um, of other things. We need to think about these technologies as interventions that have um, impacts, some of which can be harmful. And uh, in other fields of endeavour, whether it's sort of medicine, aerospace, public engineering, if you're implementing things that can have uh, an impact on people's well-being, uh, impact their health in very negative ways, that can create inequalities and discrimination in particular ways, then you would find ways to regulate that pretty quickly. Look what happened at Google recently, I don't know if you're familiar with it, with the ethics board. Google set up an ethics board and they did two things wrong. The first one is they said, whatever is decided in here, it can't be disclosed. What is the role of an ethics board if it can't stop what has been rolled out? But second, they put on their board a climate change denier, Trump supporter. And the workers are like, well, it's not really ethical, is it? And, they, and Google had to dismiss their board. Now, organisations now are struggling to understand what is their governance that they need to put together when they deploy artificial intelligence and transform with artificial intelligence. This is where you need to come in. It's not just HR. Artificial intelligence is transformational. I always say when you deploy an algorithm, an algorithm has to be valid. It can be valid because statistically it works, but it also has to be valid because it's valid in the wider context of a company. You know what I'm talking about, you're a data scientist. So, and it's called, some people call it ecological validity. Does it work with the employees? What's the impact of that specific algorithm in augmenting the capability and capacity of workers? How does the machine cooperate with the worker? These are the questions that I would like to see the trade unions asking. What is the governance that we put in place when we start changing a workplace with artificial intelligence? When organisations say businesses deploy artificial intelligence, which is highly transformational within an organisation, do they have an innovation board? Do workers sit on the board? So when an algorithm is deployed, they can demand to see what is the assessment that is being made to ensure that we are preparing for the impact of the particular machine, the impact on the workforce. So that we can really assess how this is going. And this is like what has been really troubling me over the last few months. Do you know why? Because everybody's been talking about artificial intelligence ethics. And ethics is a good thing, obviously, but it can be very seductive to talk about ethics 
without talking about the real things, which is about power. And if we all focus on ethics, and we all focus on bias, we all focus on these things, we don't focus on the structural issues underpinning all this. And the structural issues underpinning all this is who is creating the algorithms, who has the decision we can assess in a wider sense for the company, the impact on the workers, and what role do workers play in the digital transformation that companies are undertaking right now. And there is also an imperative for businesses. I mean, I work in the private sector, and I say to organizations myself, I say, you have to do it. Because if you want to retain your workers, you need to do this. Because look what happened, happening, for example, with Facebook right now. A lot of undergraduates don't want to work with Facebook because they don't feel it's right. It's changing. A lot of tech workers, they don't want to work for a company that doesn't do things of what they consider is the good thing. Hmm, interesting stuff. I think you'd agree there. Second question, how should unions be meeting the challenge of the new world of work and is there a role for government in all this? If there's a job for government, it's partly helping employers get ahead of the game in understanding what, that, what the actual mechanics and change might look like and I think that's really important to single out government has got a role in doing that. But for me, it's about, for, if I was giving advice to, to the unions, I would say, yeah, it's about change management and doing, going back to your roots and thinking what you're all about and what point at which you try and influence. And there is a lot of interest in keeping it opaque, so we don't understand it. We can't challenge it. We don't know, you know. <laughs> One of the things I always look at is the, the digital advertising system, which is online manipulation and all the kind of stuff that's led to Donald Trump and Brexit. But, but, but you know, and, and people say they make it so complex. It's not. But they make it so complex so we can't understand it, challenge it. The opacity around all this is really worrying. And we don't know, you know, the opacity, for example, around artificial intelligence products that companies are purchasing, used by companies in their human resources, for example, to choose candidates. The opacity around artificial intelligence software purchased by hospitals. There is a complete lack of transparency around all this, and that is highly problematic. The use of algorithms within companies. For example, I know that the battle of the future for privacy people like me will be the battle between the capacity to audit an algorithm versus the trade secret of organizations and commercial interests. That would be the battle of the future. I mean, trust me, look at the future of privacy will be around how much regulators will be able to go and see, I want, I want transparency, I want to see what, how that algorithm works against the commercial interest and the big company says, I can't show that to you. Um, so, for example, in recruitment, you know, when companies start to use artificial intelligence to recruit personnel and to identify what is a good employer and what is a, a good employee or what is a bad employee, this is where all the bias can come in. For example, if you say a good employee is somebody who comes to work at 8 o'clock in the morning and then you happen to have your workplace, which is in near Westminster in central London, and obviously who can come to work at 8 o'clock in the morning is who is likely to live in central London, not a single mum with three kids living in the outskirts of London having to commute after she's taking the kids to school. Bias, by proxy, in technical language. So 
the, there's no transparency around all this. And the excuse for this is it's too complex. One piece of advice, you've got to familiarise with this. You've got to familiarise with what is an algorithm, an opinion in a code, <laughs> basically. It's logic and control, but you have to familiarise with these terms and be able to explain them. Because this is the language that we all need to master and speak. And if we don't, and if we don't, because AI is about power, they just decide what to do without our involvement. Algorithms are here already and decide so much about our life already, to the point that there is no corner of our life right now that is not touched by artificial intelligence. So if you go back, when you go back to your workplace tomorrow, it's really about thinking, I think, about how we bring this concept to a wider audience, to workers everywhere, so that we can start really understanding these ideas. What is an algorithm? What is an automated decision? And how would it really impact the workplace? To an extent, governance around transformation is about the relationship between the developers and the domain experts. The domain experts are the one asking, ones asking the right questions. And it could be legal compliance or whatever. We need to be domain experts. And we can't be that if we don't master this and if we don't really say, okay, I want to understand this AI world, what it is in reality. I get the sense actually that we will need to rapidly accelerate beyond codes of practice. They might be useful in some arenas into a more robust notion of data rights and <coughs> obligations that if my data is being used as a worker as a consumer as a citizen as a resident then it is my right to know what it's being used for and i should be asked for some informed consent and that should be available to me and if it is if it is not there has been a breach and i suspect that gdpr is the beginnings of that conversation well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I thought that was a fascinating kind of tour around dissection, delving into, delving under the near future world of work that we're about to trip into. Quite um, challenging, you might say, dystopian in other ways. Lots and lots of meat on those bones. And I, I know that's not a turn of phrase that appeals to everyone. So my apologies if that, that doesn't land happily with you. We moved on from that consideration of the future world of work to look at one of the undeniable and irresistible themes that will feature largely in it and that is AI, digital, how we organise around it, how we make it our servant rather than our master and we had a panel discussion which shed a lot of light in a very practical way on on that issue. If you've not heard of 10xing, if you're not quite sure, or you think you do know, but it's not quite sure what spotlight means, or what a megaphone is, or even what co-worker is, well, now's your chance to get well ahead of the curve. As we hear from Natasha Kizzy from Google, fascinating presentation. She's a brand manager expert for Google, but has got a fantastic, deeply impressive backstory. Christina Colclough, who you may remember from a podcast earlier in this season from Uni Global Union on AI and the Spotlight Project, and then Anthony Hayes from the TUC. 
uh, talking about Megaphone. And then we'll finally round up with Becky, just reminding us what co- the co-worker project is and how you can get involved in that. We'll start off with Natasha. And I think it's really important as well to recognise that a lot of companies are not set up um, for this kind of the speed at which um, the digital age is forcing us to work. So there, there's, you know, there's when we talk about, I think probably across the board with all of the customers that um, we engage with in the, the pod that I work in, but also across the whole of Google, digital transformation is the thing that everybody is talking about. They are all obsessed about um, customer experience and digital transformation. So don't beat yourselves up and sort of feel like, oh, there's so much that we could be doing. Everybody's having exactly the same conversation. And it's about the speed at which you need to go for your customers and what's right for you. But just recognizing that you know, a lot of organizations are slow by design. What could you do to kind of speed up that process? Are there things like, are there, is there just sort of red tape that's just kind of nonsense that you could just get rid of? You know, when you think about approval systems, do you need all of those layers of approval? Are they really <laughs> necessary? Um, what processes, what systems are you using? Could you improve your systems as well? Um, because slow just doesn't work in the digital age. And I think when you kind of remove some of those barriers and speed things up, it gives people kind of the opportunity to think big and sort of freeze up some of that time that's just not taken up with process. And I just wanted to talk about um, the, we, we talk a lot at Google about 10xing ideas. So really thinking big and it comes from the X global community, which is where it's a group of people who fundamentally will bring technological scientific innovation <coughs> with technology breakthrough to really force interesting new ways of looking at problems that global society faces and trying to find new ways in which they can overcome those. So whether it's like, could AI help with flooding, predicting floods in countries? And what could we do working with governments to crack some of those challenges and be ahead of the curve and help help communities? Those kinds of things, they're big global problems. And bringing the scientific community together with the technological community is uh, is kind of the focus of that, that X community. But I think when you translate that into organizations, the way that we think about it is it's about big ideas, right? Why not think big and bold? If you've kind of got objectives, if you've got goals and you're hitting your goals all of the time, your goals aren't big and bold enough. Have the vision to think ahead. We're not, none of us are, you know, we're not Mystic Meg. None of us know what's coming down the line in the future. But if we are forecasting kind of where our ambition is, is our, is our ambition big enough? And when we forecast forward and we think about that ambition, you know, could we actually 10x it? And if we 10x it, what does that look like? And 10xing, don't be afraid of 10xing because there's one thing that's certain is you're going to fail. And so the principle of that is, and that's the magic of digital, right? I think we need to rebrand failure as experimentation. If we just call failure something else, then people will be less scared by it. Because actually in the world of digital, if you're not experimenting, you're not fully taking advantage of the world of digital. So if you're not having hypotheses and thinking about things and then creating experiments to see whether your hypotheses are right and learning from those and then you know working out what, what's right and going with that and then thinking about the next hypotheses and then testing that, then you're not truly thinking with the digital first approach. So we would recommend setting 10x goals. Make sure that they're unattainable. Sometimes you might just reach the stars. But if you fail, don't call it failure. Just call it experimentation and then move forward. Natasha Kizzy there from Google, all about 10xing and the importance of setting goals you can't expect to reach. We move on now to our friend Christina Colclough, who in trademark style 
woke the hall up by describing just why Project Spotlight and the Young Workers Lab is so necessary. Something else was said before that I can't help but commenting on. Somebody said, young people don't get us or don't get the union movement. And I want to turn that around and say, we don't get them. And the reason why we don't get them is the reason of my project here is that we never listen. How many young people are in your statutory bodies? How many young people actually have a say? How many young people turn up to your member meetings? Now, I think we have to learn to listen. We have to learn to get them. And all we have to do is look at their campaigns, climate change, against the rifles, against weapons, against this and this. We need to tap into this, but we need to listen. And, as Natasha said, we need to have the guts to change. What am I doing in the Young Workers Lab? Now, the Young Workers Lab is a project which is actually uh, financed by Google.org, and it aims to answer this fundamental question. How can we actually use digital technologies to improve the young workers' job experience, work experience, but also the union's response to these young people? The young people across the world are experiencing a more and more precarious labour market, they are more and more individualized, and more importantly, they are competitors to one another, increasingly. And nobody's begging that question, what is going to happen to our societies when the majority of us go from being colleagues to being competitors? And I think this, is, this is, was the whole entry point to this project, together with what really shocked me. I was traveling, <coughs> giving seminars in seven different locations across the world on this. And every time I ask the young people, so what are your dreams and aspirations with the future? They said, there'll, there'll be no future. Or there'll be no jobs. The robots are coming. Or democracy sucks. Nobody's listening. Democracy is corrupted. And then I would ask them this important question, and what are you going to do about it? And they didn't have a response. It was that lack of response that made me want to do this project, and luckily, Google.org wanted to support it. You know, almost every week, if not every day, we read news articles on the surveillance of workers, these new tools that are being used to measure how quickly somebody's tapping on the keyboard, or the recent one was, is taking snapshots of the websites we're visiting when at work to give an indication of whether this employee or work is likely to leave. Are they going on to LinkedIn job ads and so on? Or we have the measuring of whereabouts in the company. Now, this data symmetry is putting us into a very weak bargaining position because the employers know far more about us than we do. So Project Spotlight wants to address that. So the way it works is actually quite simple. Let's say that you as a union, you have this app, and uh, you want to say, well, so working time, you know, the majority of us commute more and more. House prices in London forcing people outside of the city. Maybe, and should we test whether commuting time, you know, firstly, how, how far do our members commute to work? And then we could ask them, are they working whilst they're commuting? Now, how many of you actually answered an email as you were on your way here this morning? I think the majority do, right? Mm. <laughs> Those of you who haven't put their hand up, really? <laughs> yeah. 
So shouldn't that time where you're actually working be regarded as work? Isn't that just a begging question? So we can measure this. We can ask our members and say, over the next two weeks, we want to measure your commuting time, and we want to then see, are you actually working whilst you're commuting? The campaign then ends after two weeks. The member gets asked, this is your data, this is the report, this is your average commuting time. Do you want to share that data back to the union? So they have a choice to do that or not. So they do that, and then the union gets all of this data, and you can start working on it. You can actually start finding out, do we have a campaign here to start talking about negotiating with management a change of working time, for example. Now, let's take another example. Workers on their feet, restaurant workers, runners in live events, anything. Do they actually get the breaks they need? Are they getting the breaks they deserve? Now, with their phone in their pocket, they can, the phone will be able to measure the, the difference, the binary difference between movement and sitting still. An indication of having a break is you're probably sitting still, especially in a job where you're usually on your feet. So again, this can be run over two weeks. It can also be a measurement of light and dark, cold and warm. Are the working conditions actually that our members are subject to, are they good, are they defensible, or do we need to change? See, this one is probably going to spook some of you. But the app can also measure sleep patterns. Now, not directly at this very moment, Christine is in deep sleep, but it will know, of course, when is the phone on or off. How many of you woke up last night and looked at your phone? Increasingly, increasing number of reports are showing the mental health stress that workers are under by, for example, waking up at night, turning on their phone, checking the email, or waking up at night saying, oh, I must remember tomorrow and writing a note. So we would, now this is pushing it, I know, because people will say, well, do we trust our union with this data? Well, to that response, I'll say, you already trust Fitbit. You already trust, you know. <laughs> So why not trust your union? Anyway, but we will be able to go in and do this and then go back to the employers and say, either do you know that 80% of your workforce are actually people who go to bed really late? Maybe we should change the core working hours. Or 85% of your workers wake up at night doing emails. Maybe there's a stress problem here. What we're saying is we're going away from anecdotal stories which might touch us, but they don't change, to actually proof anonymous, quantifiable proof. I think we in the union movement underestimate totally the value of data. And I don't mean the monetary value. How many, now let's be really honest here, right? Try and be really honest. How many of you in your unions actually have a CRM that's, that is structuring your data? Or is it on Excel sheets, in filing cabinets, or f floppy disks? Now, I know the GDPR pushed, pushed many unions into actually getting control of their data, but there's no other non-governmental organization in the world who has much legacy data as we do. Think about that. From our very beginnings, 150 years ago, we have data, if we structured it, that could tell everything from career paths to skills to job categories to discrimination to unequal pay, pay, whatever. The majority of unions across the world have not started structuring this data. 
Now, I'm saying this as a little bit of a scare for you. But, but you, I've been out on Twitter, all sorts of other places, talking about the right to be human. I want the right to be me, to be seen as me of all the problems I am and all the nice sides and the bad sides, and not an expression of these digital profiles, which are deciding what news media I read, which job chances I might have, if I can get a loan in the bank or if I can't because of whatever other data sets. I think we have to be very cautious in Google, I love you in many ways, and in some ways I think we have to be very cautious and more cautious about this whole thing around data. So the core principles of Spotlight is, is that we are, we are designing this so that it is totally consent with the members. They decide whether they want to opt into this study. They decide if they want to share their data with us. We will only log the data that we have to log and that they have agreed that we log. Stay posted on this website, futurewildofwork.org. Christina Colclough from Uni Global Union. Great, as always, on the importance of being human, the right to be human, and a whole range of other AI issues. And if you haven't caught it yet, the podcast that she and Johnny Penn recorded with us uh, earlier this year is available on the podcasting platform of your choice. Moving on now to Anthony Hayes from the TUC. Anthony is leading on the TUC's Megaphone UK project which is a campaigning organizing tool based around petitioning for change it's a model that still works really well as the experiences of australian unions that uh, anthony described to the conference uh, showed only too well uh, i want to show just an example as well and this is just one example of how petitions have been used by a union over there to build power for workers and to win so this, these three petitions started by a small union in Australia called Hospo Voice. They are a tiny operation funded by the Australian TUC and then ran through another union. But they're a really small team, just two people who are working on this. And what they're trying to do is organise hospitality workers to uh, win power for them. So I recommend having a look at the Hospo Voice site as well. It's like, looks beautiful on your mobile and all the language is fantastic and it's a good little fun bit. But this is how they've been using Megaphone. So they're trying to organise hospitality workers. Melbourne in Australia prides itself as a bit of a like cool, indie, hip, nice little cafe place and whatever else. But underpayment is a massive issue. So minimum wage in Australia is relatively high, but hardly anyone gets it, particularly not in hospitality. Young people, retail, they don't get the minimum wage. So underpayment is a massive issue. So what this union have been trying to do is involve workers without initially asking them to join the union invite them into a campaign, get them involved in it, talk them through the basics, and then identify where workers have been underpaid. Once they find those people, they will set up a petition, they will find a worker who is willing to front this petition and tell their story to back it up, and then what they'll do is send a bunch of activists, they're often trade union officials or their you know, supporters, their young labour people, whoever they are, to turn up outside those stores and to, to create a media moment to smash those employers. So this is just three examples. Joe's Shoe Store is not a shoe store, that's a cool, hip bar. Chin Chin is one of Melbourne's best restaurants and very famous and very hip again that there's been a win. And the other one, I can't remember what it's called, but Le Bon Con is a play on whatever it is. So three examples. This is just a couple of them. So they've done this 10 or 12 times. And what this has resulted in, so there's a bunch of stuff, but the first thing that I think is the most important is that it's giving these workers that work in hospitality a first interaction with what it means to be part of a collective movement, to be a part of a union movement in their lives, because they wouldn't have had that before. Something we know is that 
Trade unionism can be a learned experience. It's very difficult to explain to someone, young or old, who hasn't been involved in a trade union or doesn't understand it, what it means to have power at work and, and what it takes to beat your boss when your boss isn't paying you properly. So it brought a whole bunch of young people into this movement and shown them what it takes to be a part of it. It's also resulted in hospitality employers Melbourne, in Melbourne knowing that if they're going to break the rules, they're going to get smashed. And they have a good relationship with the Conservative government in Australia and the Ombudsman isn't doing enough. So the unions have had to find another way round that's just lobbying the government to tell them to take care of this stuff. So what they're doing is saying, if you're going to underpay people, we're going to smash your brand. So a little bit of that comes through the petition. A lot of that comes through the media. But that's a real thing that's happened now is that people know that they're going to break the rules, um, their brand's going to be hurt. As you'll see as well, there are workers at the front of all these petitions. So by using Megaphone, they've kind of been like, you know, hey, union, make sure you put your workers and tell your workers' story. They're like a really important part of what we're doing and they're much better stories than that of someone else in the union. Tell those stories, which has been a good result. And perhaps the most interesting and long-term impact of these campaigns is the union have rebranded at wage theft. So I heard we talked about language a few times earlier today. Now, talking to people about underpayment doesn't make them feel anything. It's difficult to explain. It sounds like a mistake. The unions have rebranded underpayment wage theft, and it's now resulted in a pretty conservative news outlets in Australia writing explainer pieces about what is this wage theft thing that people have, under, have, have heard about. So, you know, wage, wage theft is a term used by unions but seeping into the mainstream to describe the practice of paying workers less than they are, they are entitled to. So this idea that your boss is stealing from you is working really, really well and not so much like in the, this came to the digital comms after it came from the organisers and like the activists who were like, this wage theft stuff is really, really working. Not an Australian invention, comes from the States, but the way that it's caught on in Australia and the way that the language is used now is fantastic for organising and, and is reaching far. And there's been a political win in this as well. I mean, like I really like, I mean, this is a Labor government. Uh, they've done the right thing and they've been pressured and pulled to this. The thing I like about this, again, is, is that the headline, it calls it wage theft, not something else. Their ask was really, really strong as well. They were ambitious. They wanted bosses who do it on purpose to go to jail, and that was the ask, uh, and that's what they got to. And a massive fine, 950000 I um, can't remember what it is here, but whenever the new figures came out a couple of weeks ago about underpayments, like, it, it's rife. In Australia, it's, they call it a business, like it's called a business model and it is a business model. People do the, the maths on like how much cheaper it would be to underpay versus what the actual fine would be if you're you know, one of the 1,000 that ever gets caught and that's starting to be challenged a little bit now. Okay, by now the hall was buzzing. So many ideas, so many practical benefits, so many purposeful statements about how we can use digital information, how we can use AI. It just took Unison's Alison Charlton to ask the killer question. I'm Alison Charlton. I'm uh, from Unison. And I've got a question for Natasha. We're going through a digital transformation process at the moment. And you were talking about hippos in the room, which we do have. <laughs> but we also have issues around various departments not wanting to change much either. We had a partner working on our scoping recently and they went to one department and asked them what their requirements might be and they said exactly the same system as we've got at the moment <laughs> <laughs> and obviously digital uh, the digital team are trying to do things we work in an agile way we pr uh, we do product delivery we're trying to do what we can on a limited crm 
um, mm. with some of the data we have from our legacy membership system. But we can't drive it all from the digital team. Mm. So have you got any tips as to what we can do to try and break out of the digital team and get into the rest of the union? <clears throat> yeah, so I went through exactly this situation at NCS when I was there. I think it goes back to the point I made about data-driven insights. So having clarity about what your customer journey is and then looking at maybe where the barriers are in your customer journey or inefficiencies and then what the role of digital can be across the customer journey to drive improved performance and that might be that you're spending less money on you know at the top end of the funnel it might be that fundamentally part of the journey is broken and that you see that your conversion rate is really low or you might see that actually we've got lots of people using mobile devices but actually we don't really do much on mobile for them or the mobile experience isn't great so really get under the skin of your customer journey and live it like walk it like a customer and then I think try to surface those insights and take them to your senior leadership team what what we did as a result of that was that um, we reframed actually what the senior leadership team needed to look like and we created a new role which was a chief customer officer and we fundamentally put marketing digital and sales in under that person's remit because they couldn't affect the kind of change that they needed to without having control over those three things and that was really challenging like it took the organization I think about a year to find the right person she came from the private sector she was marketing director at um I think it was British Gas, yeah. And so it, it will require, in some insta- instances, really considerable organisational senior leadership change, and hopefully your, your team have got the appetite for it, but if you can prove through data that, that it needs to happen, that always helps. So we've spoken about Spotlight, we've spoken about Megaphone, but what we haven't spoken about so far is the Unions 21's own project, which is Coworker. So here's Becky. We're working already with a couple of unions on this. The difference between ours and the TC's platform is that we are looking to work with unions and workers in non-unionised industries and workplaces to test out what works. So how do we work together to reach new members through channels they understand using language they prefer? This is, uh, to use Natasha's theme, this is an experiment. We don't have the answers, so we're very open to kind of what that means. If you are not a union, if you are a union that's not working with us and would be interested in using this, this is in non-unionised. So if you've already got a recognition agreement, then please go see the TUC. But if you're looking to organise the 85% of the private sector who aren't unionised, then please contact us. Over a pretty noisy cup of coffee... I asked Dean Rogers of the National Association of Probation Officers what he thought was the most important takeaway from what we've just heard. So far, the last session on how we could use digital better um, was really fascinating. I think it hits at how we really need to change the culture and ask some big questions before we get to that phase. But listening to Natasha from Google, I felt like the union movement was somewhere between Copernicus and the world's round and Kennedy saying we're sat somewhere between that spectrum. Between Copernicus and Kennedy, I love it. And we need to ask ourselves some really hard questions about what we want to be and how our organisations really should work and what we're for before we get to then designing our systems. Rounding off a very successful day, I think, was Professor Mel Sims from the University of Glasgow, who was reflecting on a 
important anniversary uh, that the conference saw being celebrated. Professor Mel Sims, at your <laughs> 21 years after you came to your first Unions 21 conference, <laughs> what did you make of the day? Oh, it was a brilliant day. It was one of the most interesting reflections of trade union officers across the movement on such a wide range of things that I think we really, really, really need to think about from what support we need for collective bargaining, collective voice, how, what, what role we can play, where, where trade, we as trade unions can make choices, what support needs to come from policy, how we need to talk to employers, what, what employers need to do to engage effectively with us, through to the, the transformation, how unions... So the session I was in was looking um, at the, the programme of change within some, some key unions, through to the final session, which uh, was, was very interesting about the future of work, particularly around automation, AI, those kinds of things. So all the right kinds of things and fantastic to hear such a wide range of voices and experiences. Did you, did you not feel though that actually the whole, what, there was a thread that, that, that linked everything together, which was that we'd, we're only just starting to recognise the questions we need to answer, still less have a view of the answers. I think that's uh, not just a trade union problem though. I think every organisation that I work with, I mean universities are only just starting to grasp some of these questions. So I think that we're not alone as trade unions in beginning to think that through. And I think the woman from Google, Natasha, was very clear about that. You know, everyone is struggling to think this through, almost no matter how much resource they've got. And that's part of the challenge and that's part of why it's such a a period of experimentation for everyone. I think that's great. So next year, when you come back for your 22nd... (laughs) Unions 21, conference. Best case scenario, what will have happened in between miles? I think trade unions are starting to think through how we can shape uh, debates about the future of work. I think in the best case scenario, we will have started to think through how changes in the future of work might change us as unions. And I think it's that second bit of the question that I think there's still a lot of blank space to to try and understand what's happening, but also what the threats and opportunities are. And I think we need to do a lot more thinking in that space. You can find all the information about the speakers you've heard in this podcast on the Unions 21 website in the blog post that accompanies this episode. If you'd like to join the debate, we'd love to hear your views. Please email us at info at unions21.org.uk. You can tweet us at unions21. And if you've liked what you've heard, then please rate us and share us from the podcast platform of your choice. It really does make a difference. It just leaves me to thank all those who made the Unions 21 conference so enjoyable and such a success. Uh, Unions 21 Chair Sue Ferns, Vice Chair John Skews, Becky, our Executive Director, of course, Vic Barlow, Duncan Robertson, Henry Skews, and above all, everyone who took the time and trouble to come along, either to speak, to listen, to participate, to exhibit. Until the next Unions 21 podcast, this is me, Simon Sapp, saying thanks for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to the Unions 21 podcast. Our music is Albatross version 2 by the Computer Music All-Stars, used on a Creative Commons license. It is a Makes You Think production.